This is the Education Gadfly Show. You would expect the schools, the neighborhoods, their new neighborhoods. He's going to try to ruin my minute, isn't he? What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, Julia Raifold-Bears. Julia, welcome. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> and I, I tried so hard not to butcher your last name. Uh, that was impressive. Is that okay? Raifold-Bear. Okay. It was perfect. Yeah. Ray and full, like the bear's full. And it's sunny. You're like a scalpel, Mike. <laughs> oh, my God. I am. David Griffith is joining us, too. Hello, David. Hey, Mike. Yeah. Hey, you you, you do this sometime. It's it's harder than you think. I, I, I do. It's it's evidently harder than <laughs> I think when I try. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, if you don't know people uh, who Julia is, you are hiding under a rock. Julia is the chief operating officer at Chiefs for Change. What I will say right here, Julia, I hate to admit it, given my own Fordham work, Chiefs for Change, probably the most influential organization in education policy today. Boom. There, you heard it here first. Congratulations. <laughs> you can put that on your website. There it is. It's true. You guys are really kicking butt and uh, having an impact. And you've got a bunch of people at the state level and district level, uh, chiefs, uh, superintendents who, uh, that you work with. And you've got a whole bunch of people who are future chiefs uh, who are going through a program with you. Uh, and, and you've been coming out with great material on advice for these various folks. So way to go, Julia. Well, I appreciate it. We've got an amazing team and it's, Honestly, such a privilege to get to work with some of the nation's best leaders out there. It's, yeah. it's pretty amazing work. And some of the worst ones, too, but I'm not going to say which ones those are. <laughs> Just kidding. Never. Just kidding. Never. All right. Hey, uh, we are going to talk about a new report that you've got entitled Breaking Through, Shattering the Glass Ceiling for Women Leaders. Let's do that on Ed Reform Update. Okay, Julia. So, yeah, a few weeks ago, uh, we co-hosted an event with you for your future chiefs, and you released this great new report about the glass ceiling for women leaders. You know, it's been commented on before, education, obviously a profession that is overwhelmingly dominated by women. Uh, at the classroom level, but is less so once you get to principals and much less so when you get to superintendents, much less us policy wonks and podcast hosts. Uh, so, uh, Julia, how are we going to change this? Yeah, so this, the, I appreciate you, you having me on to talk about this. It's a, a major issue and one that the more we were working on this paper and, and trying to wrap our heads around what was going on, the more we realized that this is an issue that's happening across so many sectors. The private sector, it's happening in politics. Even as we just had you know, the year of the woman, we still have in our you know, political arenas, we have a quarter of all mayors who are women, 18% of governors. We see this in the nonprofit space where only 22% of the CEOs of the largest nonprofits are women. Healthcare, very similar trends yep. where similar to education where you know over 75% of our workforce are women. Healthcare has that at 80%. Um, and in the healthcare sector, what we found is that there is only one Fortune 500 healthcare company that's led by a woman. Wow. One. I mean, it's... It, it, it's daunting, all of it. Um, and so for us, you know, just to back up a little bit, like we took this on out of a realization that far fewer women than men in our own future chiefs program were stepping into searches and landing that top job. So we had become really, really excited and, and proud of the results that we were having with our future chiefs. We were building this very diverse pipeline of next generation leaders. We'd run three cohorts and we'd seen a third across all the cohorts land in those 
state or district superintendency or commissioner roles. And then we stepped back and we were looking at our data and we realized that while a third had landed in the role, only one was a woman. Mm. And when we took a look at our results by gender, we realized that 83% of our male future chiefs had applied to become a superintendent or a state chief, while only 23% of their female counterparts had done so. And it was a huge gut punch for us, um, for me personally. And I decided that we really needed to do something about it. Um, so I reached out to Hannah Skandera and, and Dr. Lillian Lowry, two women chiefs that I you know, just think the world of and are, are um, highly, highly accomplished in their own right. And we thought that we would just do a, a one-day programming. We'd bring all of our women future chiefs together. We figured we would have a conversation with them. We would look at the data. Um, we did some survey work. Um, but then we we realized in those conversations just how much bigger the problems were that were, were facing women and realized that uh, the women had no other networks like this to support their growth or foster trust amongst themselves or to kind of build these relationships. So we decided to take on kind of two strands. One was building out this women in leadership programming with Hannah and Lillian. And we're excited to see that as a result of that work, we've now seen our metrics double in terms of the percent of our women who've now stepped into searches. So we went from that 23% to now 46%. We've seen Susanna Cordova land in the Denver superintendency, Penny Schwinn in Tennessee, and Angelica Infante Green in Rhode Island as commissioner. So we're feeling really good on the programming. And then the second part was to talk about it, to name the problem, to acknowledge our current trends and metrics, and uh, to try to identify some solutions, which is what this report was about. Yeah, so let's talk a little more about that, uh, Julia. So you mentioned the lack of networks for women leaders, and you're working to fix that. Uh, what are some of the other barriers that you found out were keeping women from either applying or if they were applying from not landing uh, these jobs at, at as high a rate as others? Yeah, so I, I think there's kind of two paths to the issues that we were seeing in terms of why the problem exists. So uh, I kind of bucket them into both societal as well as some of the structural challenges. I think on the societal one, and this is the one that I think cuts the most across so many of the other sectors and the issues that are seen. And, and that comes down to bias, um, just a real reality that we still far too often have these definitions and ideas about what competence and leadership look like that get predicated on traits that are stereotypically associated with men. So things like the kind of gravitas a leader has or their aggressiveness or decisiveness. Um, and this creates this in a kind of assumption that exists out there around what leaders look like. And we know that, you know, often those that are making these decisions tend to preference the status quo. And so, again, this is not unique to education, but when our boards are predominantly made up of white men, and then you have um, these boards or even governors or mayors that are making these decisions and, and tend to be white and, and male, you tend to have this status quo preference. And there's another kind of side on the, the societal side that's a real challenge, and this is a, a confidence gap. Again, something that cuts across sectors, but we see so often that women just don't see themselves as ready, um, as ready whether it's for promotions or just generally underestimating their abilities. We find over and over again, and this was something we talked about a lot with our Women Future Chiefs, was this feeling that they had to just take on one more leadership role mm -hmm. and then they would be ready. Whereas our men just, that just wasn't 
the kind of attitude for them, even when they'd had very similar pathways, very similar years of experience. And in fact, there's a, a really interesting corn fairy study that we cite in the report um, that showed that when they analyzed uh, female CEOs and the kind of pathways they had prior to securing that top role, that female CEOs worked in a higher number of leadership roles, functions, and companies than their male counterparts. Um, and so we see a lot of that as well. And then, yeah. um, and then on the structural side, right. I, you know, we just we have a reality that these pipelines are very much um, skewed towards men, both in terms of what I was talking about with like the board makeup and you know sort of who's making the decisions, but also that often the both the search firms themselves as well as the process um, tend to favor more male-dominated networks and na- male-dominated backgrounds. So you'll often see jobs that really preference things around like a high school principalship or. Um, kind of the finance and operations side. And so you just have these kind of um, these dual issues that are at play that are are impacting women. That's interesting. That So for in other words, you would typically see the high school principal be elevated to the superintendency. Uh, maybe a principal who started out as, you know, the football coach and the history teacher or something like that. Whereas an elementary school principal who may be more likely to be female uh, is not as, it's not as common to elevate them to the superintendency, that sort of thing. That's right. Yeah. You know? That's right. And, and it, you know, if you think about it, like who has more exposure to the community tends to be the high school principal. Yeah. yeah. To what, I mean, it, I also, as I, you were talking, I was realizing, you know, sometimes we bring in um, principals or superintendents from outside of education, too. And my guess is those have to be 95 percent mm. or more male, too. Is that a contributing factor? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, this is why I think so much of the solution side on this has to be about creating new networks and really getting intentional about who's helping to vouch for for women, because so often we're just kind of recreating the same networks that are both coming into the searches as well as being identified. Do you, do you think the quote reform side, let, let's say the charter sector, I wonder, I wonder mm-hmm. if the charter sector is doing a better job. Now, now granted, you know, you'd have to really compare principles. You'd have to look at the principal level and do we do a better job of having a diverse set of principles than the district sector, but, or look at CMOs, these charter management organizations that start to have bigger scale and, and whether you've got more women in leadership there. I mean, I can certainly think of, you know, Eva Moskowitz and Daisha Toll at Achievement First. And I mean, I think that we maybe could make a case that there's, uh, we're doing a little bit better in that space and, and might be something to learn from. I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Julia? I mean, it's it's a great point. We certainly have beginnings of evidence that seem to show that there are some promising bright spots, definitely more on the charter side, and that there are organizations that have been developed that are really working towards creating greater representation. So I, I am, I feel very, very confident that that this is a solvable issue. I'm confident that we can address this and ensure that the next generation of great women leaders ends up right where they should be at the top. Um, but it, it's going to take a, a lot of work and similar work to, I think, what the charter sector has been very good at, which is setting some really clear goals around these things. And the search firms that uh, we talked to as we were developing this report, who work with charter sectors, have said that you know there are a lot more intentional uh, structures, I'd, put, I'd call it, that happen in searches in the charter sector. So things like searches that will say that they are going to have at least two women and leaders of color in any candidate pool, which is a recommendation that we make as well for our sector. Mm-hmm. But those things we know 
tend to help ensure that women have a fair shot at being selected when it's not just one of them uh, in that that finalist pool. All right. Well, good. Well, please go check out this important study. Again, it's called Breaking Through, Shattering the Glass Ceilings for Women Leaders. You can find it on the Chiefs for Change website. Julia, thanks so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back sometime soon. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. We just had a nice chat with Julia about the Glass Ceilings Report. You moderated the uh, release I event did. What that, an important job I had. I didn't moderate. I welcomed the oh, crowd. Oh, you welcomed. Like, I'm sorry. It was about welcomed. 90 seconds. All but right. hey, it was a really just great 90 seconds. You did a great job. That was a, the only 90 <laughs> seconds I stayed for, I think, as I recall. I had some conflict. I thought you had it out a little early. It was very it was good. Great. It was a very informative panel. It was, yeah. I mean, well, I, I really enjoyed it. Well, you know, look, what, what seems so encouraging to me is that just by by uh, starting this new network that they did for mm-hmm. uh, women in their cohort, they've seen already seen a big increase. Yeah, now, granted, it's a small size, right? Small right. sample size, but right. uh, but still, I mean, I think that's pretty encouraging. We have seen uh, some great women get uh, some high-level posts Indeed. at the state and district level in recent months, so that's promising. Yes. I'm going to choose to be uh, encouraged. <laughs> yes, choose to be encouraged. That's a great way to put it. I know that's not usually the way you, you look at things. <laughs> Mr. Curmudgeon. But. Yeah, right. That's me. <laughs> Always insisting on reality. Yeah. All, right. All right. So, speaking of reality, reality what do you have for us today? We've got a new study by Matthew Steinberg. We know Matthew well. And colleagues, uh, oh, I feel bad when I say in colleagues, but anyway, Matthew is the one that we know, um, that examines school closures and their relationship to neighborhood crime in Philadelphia. Mm. Did, you, did you send me this? I think you I did. All right. Well, anyway, uh, they study a district-level policy in Philadelphia. <laughs> Philadelphia, which mandated the closing of 29 public schools at the end of 2011-12 and 2012-13, represented about 10% of all public schools in Philadelphia. Uh, The closed schools in Philadelphia were among the lowest performing, obviously, most under-enrolled schools and served students with significantly worse behavior than district-wide averages. Mm. Uh, Their data set matched crimes to school locations and student enrollment patterns. They used a difference in differences model comparing monthly crime in blocks where school buildings closed to blocks where schools remained open or were never located. They examined how crime evolved in the months leading up to closure and find no evidence of divergent crime trends during that time, which lends credence to the study design. They also look at whether any estimated change in monthly crime varied by the grade level of the schools that were closed, the hours the students attended the schools, and changes in student enrollment following closure. All right, so mm-hmm. a bunch of stuff. And they also looked at, at whether crime was displaced, mm-hmm. like once the schools closed and the kids went elsewhere. Right, because we have, we've, we've talked about a lot of these closure studies lately here on this show, and yeah. some of them have found that, not surprisingly, when kids move elsewhere yeah. and they are particularly low performing, um, and there's a lot of them that move to another school, right. then that school uh, can be impacted yes. negatively. Also a study by Matthew Steinberg that I covered on the research minute I, months ago. No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Yes. and that we found like if you do smaller numbers, like that's better. Okay, so, you, so one hypothesis might be that you would expect 
the schools, the neighborhoods, their new neighborhoods. He's going to try to ruin my minute, isn't he? Can, can we get to the results before the hypothesis? <laughs> well, and I guess the hypothesis come first. Before your hypothesis. We always start with the hypothesis at boredom, David. We do not start with our desired results. <sighs> Key findings, people. Analysts find significant declines in crime following mm. school closure. Mm-hmm. Closures led to a 15% decline in total crime and a 30% reduction in violent crime. This estimated effects corresponds to approximately 1.4 fewer monthly crimes in the block group. Specifically, the violent crime decrease equates to approximately 0.63 fewer violent crimes per month in the block group. Meaning in the place where the school closed. Yes. In that that little neighborhood. Yes. In contrast, they find no effect of closures on property crimes. Mm Mm-hmm. The decline is concentrated among neighborhoods where high schools closed, not elementary or middle schools, and in blocks that experienced the greatest decline in student enrollment following the closure, also when a lot of kids left. Mm -hmm. They also find that the effect is concentrated almost entirely during weekdays between the hours of 9 and 5 Mm p.m. In fact, there is no effect of closures on crime during non-school hours, either during weekdays between 5 p.m., and 9 a.m. or on weekends. So just those school hours. Do we know if the crimes are happening inside of the schools? We do not have those data. Or if we did, I didn't see them. Okay. Finally, they find that crime increased more in areas that received a larger share of students displaced to closings. All right, then to your question. Yeah. The displacement of crime to new blocks, however, is significantly smaller in magnitude than the reduction in crime from closing schools, such that the net effect of closures is positive Mm. relative to decreased crime. Uh, In short, closing bad schools was a key driver in reducing crime. Mm. Gosh, where to start there? (laughs) Wow. I mean, this is not what I don't think anybody was thinking about when they decided that we needed to close schools. Um, Right. It's pretty interesting, though, right? But it is interesting. I mean, I think the first conclusion, right, is clearly... It's the kids, right? I don't see yeah. any way around that. Right. Even the, I mean, yes. I think that's consistent with what we know about just sort of criminality between yeah. the ages of fifteen and twenty-five. And no, that's it's right, and and it's not con- a good time it, for young men, and and it's concentrations of poverty, and right it, now it would be interesting. No, I mean, it, you know, are we talking about you know the school calling the cops on the right. kids for something that right. happens or within something. school? Are that we talking about something happening question. outside? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think the other key angle, right, is the concentration bit. Right? Mm-hmm. Is yeah. it? I mean, I guess that's one takeaway, right? It, is it is the is the point that you shouldn't concentrate it, or is the point that you need to just interrupt the? I, I talk, you know, I'm always on about institutional culture and how mm-hmm. sticky it is, right? Mm-hmm. But like, what exactly is the takeaway here, mm-hmm. Mike? Well, what I mean, you're saying right? We don't what well, well, we don't know what would have happened if they had just what tried to add a few more I, non-poor kids to these schools I, and well, send some of the poor kids elsewhere. Yeah, or something they try like to say the displacement wasn't as bad as, yeah. you know, and that, that's yeah. what they said, that there was some, maybe there were some peer effects, right, yeah. with these non-disruptive peers and where they went. I mean, I think what it means is, yeah, right, David, that there are some institutions that are so broken that only something dramatic like closing them and, and maybe starting fresh if there's demand can, can make sense. But, you know, look, I, my understanding is many neighborhoods that experience school closures are angry about it and they feel bad about losing their high school Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though now we may know that it might make their neighborhood safer. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you saw Matt Steinberg's, uh, he did an interview. I saw it in some newspaper and he was saying, you know, in, in many cases, these neighborhoods were already filled with blight. You know, there were, yeah. this was one more boarded up building, mm-hmm. you know, added to numerous built up buildings. And so in some cases, maybe you didn't see 
what you're talking about, yeah. right? That reaction, it was sort of, I mean, these were already really depressed um, right. neighborhoods. There weren't many people left in these neighborhoods right. anyways. That's and right. again, it totally matters. Whether, I mean, for the community, if the crimes were happening inside of the school, they just didn't see them. So mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. seems like math, you should have those data. I'm uh, trying to figure out what the takeaway is from the fact that it's in school hours, right? Because, I mean, where are the kids, if, if they're going somewhere else to school, right, then where are they in non-school hours, you know, in the treatment group, right? Are they back in the neighborhood or are they somewhere else, right? Well, or they're just at home. I mean, or they just or home, right? wherever else. And right. it's just that they're, he's defining this neighborhood tightly enough that... I guess my point, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm just trying to... It seems like the, the, it's not driven by their behavior outside of school hours, I guess is what I'm yeah. trying to say, right? right. Or at least mm-hmm. the differences are. Well, well yeah, it could be yeah. between 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. Yeah, right. I mean, we do I mean, know those are dangerous hours. Very dangerous hours. I mean, especially in, I mean, just from my little small insides, that's yeah. where kids really get in a lot of trouble after school, where they have, like, they have, they have these programs where they, safety zones, where they walk kids yeah. home, they make sure there's adults with them after school hours, and so on and so forth, so. And that's during school hours? Well, it's, right no, it's right after, okay. like, when the bell rings, okay. you know, so. In some cases, yeah, it, these these crimes happen on school grounds, like right, literally, you know, right outside mm-hmm. the door, but they're not in the building themselves. And sometimes, yeah, it's a block away, but they're just, the bell just rang and, you know, the kids have gotten into a fight, you know, a block away. So, um, yeah, sometimes it happens as a result of something that started in the school hallway mm-hmm. and then kind of finished outside the building. So. Really interesting stuff. Way yes. to go, Matthew Steinberg. We love it. Yeah. And, uh, huh, okay. We're going to keep learning. Look, you know, Rick, Rick has had a column, I don't know, a, a few weeks ago, and he made the point that we should, as reformers, always acknowledge that something like a school closing, we shouldn't be happy about it. You know, it's it's something that, of course, comes uh, with a emotional. Yeah, and I think that's right. I mean, I think we need to be clear. Look, this is not a, something to, to celebrate the closure of a school. However, mm-hmm. it still may be the right thing right. to do uh, for kids. And, yep. uh, and here's some more evidence. Especially when you have a, a better alternative a better for alternative. them. That makes all the difference with parents, right? right? Like, what are you giving me in return for closing this building? for my kids. So. All right. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm Dave Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gapply Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org. 